This is Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see Him more clearly, love Him more dearly, and follow Him more nearly. As we begin our podcast today, I want to remind you that on Monday evenings, we invite you to join us in a Zoom uh, call or group that um, just gets together and asks questions and we fellowship together. So you can join us Monday evening at 7.30 Mountain Daylight Time and put in the number 403-506-9201 and you will find us and we welcome you. And you're welcome to bring any questions that you have or just observe and listen to other people ask their questions. We have a good time together. And then also on the website, rediscoveringgod.ca is the link for the PDF documents that will, uh, will be posted that will have the information that we'll be talking about today. And so that's helpful for people to be able to follow along and have a hard copy of uh, what we're discussing. So Ian, welcome. And uh, where are we headed today? Well, it's Easter weekend. Um, I don't know what that means to you, Warren. Um, tell me what it means to you. Well, it has changed over the years. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 for many years, it was about Jesus' death. And, uh, and then now it's, it's still about his death, but it's more focused on his resurrection and what that means. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think um, I've been able to understand his death in a way that, to me, makes more sense than, than previously. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know there's a personal question. Do you attend any Easter services? Or is it just ho-hum routine weekend? Well, this year we, will, we won't be attending any special services. Uh, there have been times we've gone to pageants and events like that and taken that in on Easter, but uh, not as a uh, consistent thing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really an interesting time of the year. Um, Easter and Christmas are the two times that uh, some people will even consider going to church. Yes. And uh, when I was pastoring, I always had my church open for uh, service on Good Friday and also a resurrection service on Sunday morning. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I thought we'd talk about, uh, you know, Jesus' death. Um, this is a huge topic. And the great heresies of the of the uh, Christian church have always centered around Christ and his death. And um, there's a huge difference between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church over the, uh, the meaning of the atonement. And so um, let's just do a little history of atonement theories, very brief uh, overview. And, and then we'll look at the scriptures. Uh, which uh, tell us why Jesus died. And I think we'll find some interesting input from those scriptures. 
And I would certainly agree with you that this is a very important topic to correctly understand um, what happened at the cross. Um, it, it just makes a lot of difference in how uh, I've related to it personally, and, and it moves my heart in ways that um, previously it hasn't. And I think that's, that's uh, very important for people to understand more correctly. So um, the first uh, uh, view of the atonement, what happened at the cross, uh, we find in the book of Acts. Uh, that's uh, um, sort of an interesting place to start. I don't often find people starting here. They usually start about 40 AD or 100 AD. But let's start with the book of Acts. Yes. And uh, we'll read a few passages here. Acts 2 verse 23. But God knew what would happen and his prearranged plans carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of the lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. So uh, Jesus uh, was killed, executed by the religious people of his day. Mm -hmm. They enlisted the help of the, the uh, military power uh, that occupied Israel, namely the Roman soldiers. And uh, Peter is talking here on the day of Pentecost, and he, he just lays the blame directly on the people uh, that he's talking to. And yet he, he seems to suggest that God knew it was going to happen. He doesn't go so far to say that God had planned it to happen. But that's mm -hmm. often the way we think of it, that this was all part of God's plan, that Jesus mm -hmm. would, would die on a cross and yeah. that uh, it was prearranged plan. Yeah, long before there were crosses. Yes. You want to read verse 36? Well, but before we do, are we saying then that God, I think we need to distinguish between that God knew it was going to happen, but that wasn't what he wanted to have happen. Or was that what uh, yeah, he wanted to have happen? Yeah, we'll get there. Okay, because it, 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 it isn't clear in that verse. Sorry, verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. You crucified him, but the Lord has made, God has made him Lord and Messiah. Yes. Those are interesting words. We could talk about them for quite a while. We're not going to. Chapter 3 of Acts, verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Mm -hmm. And maybe one more. Acts 4, verse 10. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So um, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight passages like this in the book of Acts, which lays the cause of Jesus' death squarely on the people of his day. Yeah, really clear. You crucified him. Yeah. 
Um, so I would say that view, uh, we haven't read all the additional verses, but the view of Acts, Luke, who's writing Acts, is that uh, Jesus came and loved and served us in every possible way with miracles and teachings and compassion and we executed it yes so we'll come back to this so the next uh, sort of theory is called the ransom theory um, and this runs to about the year 1000 so it's uh Adam and Eve sold humanity over to the devil at the time of the fall. And so uh, it's required that God pay the devil a ransom to free us from the devil's clutches. Right. Now, there's a very cultural um, understanding of the atonement because pirates were in vogue, kidnappers were in vogue, um, They'd go on the crusades and some of the Christian soldiers would be captured and they'd have to pay money to get them freed and so on. So this whole idea of a ransom theory um, is very culturally based. Hmm. I didn't so realize this is that. Very, very common and taught by the church fathers. Hmm. Uh, it has an interesting uh, twist to it is that after God had paid the ransom, uh, he tricked the devil into accepting Christ's death as a ransom, uh, but the devil didn't realize that Christ could not be held by death. So he escaped the devil's clutches. Hmm. So <laughs> kind of sense of humor in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, a gentleman by the name of Gustav Orland who was born in 1879 and died in 1977, he popularized the ransom theory. Uh, and his take on it was that it wasn't a business transaction or a legal transaction where you are, someone has to pay and somebody has to receive the payment, but rather it was the emancipation of human beings from the bondage of sin and death. Uh, and and this, this gives us the first inkling uh, of the importance of a moral view of atonement versus uh, a, a sort of a legal or judicial view of atonement. That, and we'll talk more about this, that there are moral things at stake here. So that's about up to a thousand years ago. And then in, in, uh, there was a, a Saint Anselm of Canterbury. Um, he was actually head of the church in England. And uh, he proposed the idea, and again, this is culturally based uh, on the feudal system where you had a Lord and a whole lot of uh, servants or squatters on his land and they had to respect the Lord and pay him tax and serve in his army if he required it. And so he sort of saw God as the cosmic Lord and the rest of us as servants. Now in the feudal system, if you, if, if you stole from the Lord, that was 
far worse than stealing from a fellow servant or slave uh, because you had defrauded the Lord of his honor as Lord. So that uh, Anselm said human sin is defrauding God of the honor he is due. So, you know, when uh, it's uh, Paul says we've all come short of the glory of God, that verse sort of lends itself to this idea of it's called the satisfaction theory of the atonement, that you have to satisfy the honor of God. And the idea was that uh, God's infinite and no man, no finite man, uh, could satisfy God's honor, which had been uh, diminished, discounted by sin. Only someone of equal value to God could actually restore God's honor. And so that's why uh, the death of Jesus satisfied this requirement. Hmm. So th this theory, this satisfaction theory, that you have to satisfy the honor of the Lord of the universe has traditionally been taught in the Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed traditions of Western Christianity. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it never carried over into the Eastern Orthodox churches. They've never bought into this. Okay. Uh, and I remind you that the, the two churches, the Western church, which we call the Catholic church, and the Eastern Church, which we call the Orthodox Church, they split around about this time, eight, nine hundred, a thousand AD. Okay. And so the Eastern Church never bought into this one or the next one that we're going to talk about. So they split, but not necessarily over this issue. Um, I'm really not sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Just, just to uh, review, we've had the uh, Book of Acts' view that uh, sinners executed God. We have the ransom theory, which God had to buy us back from the devil. And we have the satisfaction theory, where God is the feudal lord of the universe and defrauded him of the honor due to him. And Jesus' death uh, was the restitution of the honor of God. So it, it almost seems as if every so often the atonement gets re-described uh, in a way that fits what's happening in that context. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're always doing that. You know, um, you do that for yourself. I do it for myself is that out of our cultural understandings of reality, we try and make sense of what's been said in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And it's only when you make it relevant to a culture that you're going to be able to influence people in the culture. Right. If it's relevant to them, you're not going to make any headway. Mm -hmm. In about 1100, that's... Uh, and partially as a reaction against the satisfaction theory, we have what's called the moral influence theory. Uh, this was formulated by Peter Abelard. 
And in this view, the purpose and result of Christ's death was to influence mankind towards moral improvement. So that sounds right to me. It sounds right to you, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Wives criticized is because it didn't go beyond that. Uh, and as we'll see, uh, this is true, but there's more to it. Okay. Yeah. So the fourth uh, idea on atonement is what's called the penal substitution theory of atonement. Big words. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is uh, a modification, really, of the satisfaction theory of atonement. And this starts with the reformers, Luther and Calvin. Calvin was a lawyer, and Luther was strongly into law. It was a time of law. Law was developing, uh, coming to the forefront as a, a way of regulating society uh, on a just way. And so um, these men saw um, the problem of that there's a law in the universe that says if you sin, uh, uh, you must die. Of course, that's not written down anywhere like that, but there are hints at such a law, like uh, the wages of sin is, is death. Uh, and that's read in this way. The penalty of sin is death. Yes. So when God says to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat thereof, you will die, uh, we now have to decide, is God saying the consequence of sin is death, or if you sin, I'm going to execute you? Right. See, those are the, the two options. There's probably more, but just for simplicity's sake. So in this theory, which is the dominant way, uh, theory in Western culture today, accepted by the mainline churches, evangelical churches, and even Pentecostal churches, is this idea that there's a law in the universe that says if you sin, you have to die. And so then the interpretation is that Jesus came and died in our place, and therefore we can uh, be freed from the penalty of death. Mm -hmm. So um, what's interesting is that our Muslim friends uh, have always objected to this. And they said it's legal fiction to say that an innocent man can die in the place of a guilty man. Yes. Just doesn't make sense. They have a good point there. Uh, but we've just hung on to it in the West and said, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Yes. And that's why we really need to look at these verses. So the other uh, theories of atonement, um, I'm not going to talk about them too much. There's the incarnational atonement theory of Robin Collins. Collins says he's very strong on the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says that uh, by sharing in human life situation, God's self ceased to be alien from ourselves, making it possible for ourselves to be united with God's self 
which in turn saves us from sin. So it's this identification, incarnational theory, that um, when we die with Christ, we raise to newness of life as a child of God, right. as a sibling of Jesus. And that's what this, Jesus dies and we die with him. Just like Adam ate the fruit and we ate it with him and so we die with Adam. Hmm. It's this, uh, then I'm arrogant enough to put in one uh, that, that uh, I believe in, which is called revealing the heart of God atonement. So what I mean by this is that when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, he's actually tempting them to believe that God is selfish and he's withholding something from them. And he says, if you eat this fruit, you will become like God, implying that you're at a lower level right now and eating this fruit will somehow elevate you. Uh, what he's actually saying is that God is selfish. Yes. And so the way Jesus lived and died um, is the primary proof that God is unselfish. Right. Do you follow that? Yes. Yeah. Because uh, let me just expand on it a little bit. God has always made everything he wanted. He can I mean, just speak it into existence. Yes. So how do you say somebody like that? is unselfish how are you going to prove it exactly you don't know because if he wanted it know. he could have it yeah so in order to to demonstrate that god is unselfish we have to back god into a corner mm -hmm. uh, and confront him with something that he doesn't want to do which would benefit other people and then see which choice he's going to make Right. Is he going to benefit himself or will he at the expense of himself benefit other people, in which case he's unselfish? Mm -hmm. Now, that is why it's so relevant that Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, and he, he says, I don't want to die. Can't you take this cup from me? Isn't there another way? And he prays this three times and then he resigns himself because there, there is no other way. Right. Uh, and so he, he plows through this abuse and torture and ridicule and finally execution. See, it's not the death of Jesus only. Yeah, I mean, he was dying in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it was just his death that was necessitated. He could have died there. Yes. But that did not solve the problem um, like a public death, a public abuse, public torture does. Because now everybody's watching, including the whole cosmos. Right. This is God. He doesn't want to die. Um, he doesn't deserve to die. What's he going to choose? So it really reveals his unselfishness to allow yeah. himself to die rather than save himself at the risk of others. Right on. Okay. Yeah. So um, we've gone through this short history 
And now we want to look at the New Testament scriptures which address the death of Jesus Christ. Of course, okay. this is not exhaustive, but uh, it is some of the major ones that we want to talk about. Right. We're going to read some of the scriptures which uh, address the death of Jesus Christ. I initially started this list uh, when I read uh, the book by John Stott, The Cross of Christ. Okay. Uh, but I've since added uh, some to those. And they're certainly not exhaustive. Uh, we don't have every New Testament verse, but we do have uh, a good cross section. So I want to make some points uh, before we read these scriptures. One, it's important to separate a moral sacrifice from a legal sacrifice or judicial punishment or penalty. Let me explain what I'm talking about. A moral sacrifice appeals to the better nature of a person. And it does not require a law to make this evident. For instance, if uh, you donated a, a, a kidney or a lung, to somebody, uh, there's no law in the universe which says you have to do that. But when you do that, uh, you exert an influence on the people who know about it. It's a moral influence. So in that sense, it's a moral sacrifice because you're giving up a part of your body. That's certainly a sacrifice. Yeah. You're giving to someone else. But like you say, there's no law that says the requirement that you have to do that. It just is a good thing to do morally. Yeah. Uh, and when a person does something like that, it, uh, it wins your respect. Yes. Like take Mother Teresa, you know, she had enormous authority in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, be because uh, this diminutive little woman, I think she was from Serbia or... Kosovo, some country near there. Uh, and yet she has this authority in the whole world because of the way she spent her life ministering to other people, more specifically, the dying on the streets of Kolkata. Yes. Doing things like um, giving the dying a piece of candy to suck on because they've never had that in their lives. Or mm putting them between sheets in a bed that they've never experienced before. Um, so her influence was moral. Yes. It wasn't legal. So legal sacrifice, on the other hand, is based on extrinsic or imposed law. And this is very important. Extrinsic or imposed law is laws created by human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we might say we got them from God, and I'm not denying that we get them from God in our better minutes, uh, moments, but uh, the laws that we have, uh, we've made them up, and they're always a response to some emergent. Animal sacrifices for sin are an example. Uh, that was something uh, that was codified, it was written down as a law, and details were given. Um, 
So a fine or a jail term is the result of a perpetrator being found guilty of transgressing a codified law. It's written down somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can't put a person in jail just because you don't like what they did or you don't like them. You have to actually produce evidence right. that they have broken the law. So there's no law that we know of that specifies that God had to die to save sinners. Uh, if we look back in the brief history we did, um, it comes from feudal and legal societies, but it's never stated like that in the scripture. It certainly has what? infiltrated into our understanding of what happened. Yes. And um, one of the reasons it has is because we have laws about animal sacrifices mm -hmm. uh, that were a legal uh, penalty for sinning. And so we extrapolated from that and said, well, those animal sacrifice laws actually describe a greater law that's written down somewhere in the universe or understood somewhere in the universe. So let me give you a practical example. Um, when you read in your new car's manual, change the oil in the engine every 8,000 kilometers or it will fail. If you don't change the oil and the engine fails, uh, is that because, uh, uh, is that a penalty for not changing the oil or is the consequence? Yes, I think it's a natural consequence because the the manufacturer doesn't come and destroy your engine if you if he finds out you haven't been doing that. And yeah, and there's no law uh, somewhere in the mechanical universe that says if you don't change the oil uh, in your engine, the engine will destruct mm -hmm. or or be destroyed. No, we don't have inspectors checking to see if you've changed the oil in your engine. So it's a difference between an imposed law and an intrinsic law. Yes. Or a natural consequence. Yes. Right. Okay. But, yeah. In intrinsic laws, natural laws, whatever you want to call them, uh, you have consequences. You don't have punishments. Yes. The imposed laws there's no particular natural consequence. Uh, you, you actually have to enforce a consequence. For instance, if I'm not driving at 30 kilometers an hour uh, next to a play area or a school zone, um, there's no natural consequence uh, for driving at, say, 40 kilometers an hour. Um, the idea is that you slow down to protect children, right. which makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, if you're very careful uh, and you're wide awake and alert, you'll probably notice a child before they get into trouble. So, but an imposed law, which is the 30 kilometer an hour speed limit around playgrounds and schools is, is enforced. Uh, which means that if you're going 40, you will be fine for it. Yes. Well, and it really it's designed to 
prevent you the horror of an intrinsic result or a natural result where a child could run out and you could end up hitting a child. Yeah. So um, let's talk about Romans 6.23, which says the, the wages of sin is death. Yes. Is that intrinsic or extrinsic? Is, it a, is death a consequence of sin or is it a punishment for sin? Well, I think it's a consequence of sin, but for years I believed it was uh, an imposed punishment that God places on sinners. Yeah. See, that, that, that's the huge divide. Yeah. Um, there's more than one, but this is one of them when we come to talk about uh, why Jesus died. So let's move on to another paradigm uh, to think about, is the difference between God's perspective and our human perspective. So I'm sure you've noticed that uh, often um, a man and a spouse have a very different view of the same incident or in terms of plans. That can happen very easily. <laughs> You're being very cautious. Well, um, yes. <laughs> so we, we have different perspectives. And a, a fatal mistake to make in human relationships is that your perspective is the only perspective. Yes. We often assume that there's only one perspective. But you know, God has a pure heart. And so his perspective is different to our perspectives derived from a selfish heart. Right. Well, and he says, my, my thoughts are different than your thoughts. My ways are different than yours. Yes. And you know, in the New Testament, we love these stories of where the Pharisees try and trap Jesus. And then, depending on how you see it, he always manages to wriggle out of it. Yes, he's a master at that. And and that was because he had a different perspective. Mm -hmm. So the Pharisees would set up a trap that was foolproof in their perspective. Mm -hmm. But Jesus wasn't thinking like that. Yeah. And so uh, he would come up with a solution that they'd never dreamt of. Like the woman brought it's taken in adultery. I mean, how is Jesus going to get out of this? That's He's purely... clearly guilty. Totally black and white. She's definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you asked her, she would say it's true. Yeah. So now he's trapped in their minds. So what does Jesus do? He wants to bless her. He wants to bless all the people involved. And so he starts writing in the sand and diffuses the whole scene. Mm-hmm. If you really want to get into trouble, is put your own perspective on God. Isn't that what we've done with with this whole idea of the legal of seeing? You've described a, a moral sacrifice, but we've said it's a legal sacrifice, and we've made yeah. it to satisfy a legal imposed law, and and that's how Christianity has uh, described this for many, many years. Yeah, last 500 years in the Western church. Yes. So, um, 
this this is really important because sometimes people assume that this is what the bible teaches and we've always believed it and all christians everywhere on earth believe it that's very far from the truth yeah it's very important for people to realize that the atonement gets described many, many different ways throughout time. And this is not the only way of understanding what happened at the cross. Okay. Point number three we're making. Uh, Bible writers often assume that prediction means causation. That because you prophesy uh, or predict something, that means you cause it. Mm -hmm. so, without being too personal, uh, I can predict that within a hundred years you'll be dead, Warren. <laughs> You're probably true on that. You <laughs> so, are true on that. <laughs> uh, uh, an Old Testament writer would uh, therefore assume that I'd killed you. Right. No need. Time will kill me. Yeah. Um, astronomers predict uh, eclipses, but this does not mean they cause them. So, you know, Isaiah um, predicted uh, that the ears of the people would not be able to hear and their eyes would not be able to see that Jesus was the Messiah. And then he says, uh, and God caused the deafness and the blindness. Mm. So he turned it from being a prediction to a causation. I included both of them. Yeah. <laughs> See, if, if you were in a, on an island where people didn't know about astronomy and you knew about a coming eclipse and you told the people um, the sun's going to dark in three days mm -hmm. and you could add a little twist and that is the, because of my power. And then the people saw the sun go dark. They would believe you. Yes. You'd have tremendous power over them. Yeah. So in that first text that we read in Acts, that's kind of what you're describing there. It, it was a, a, a prediction, but not causation. Yeah. God knew this was what was going to happen. And so, but they were still the people that killed him. God didn't kill him. You know, somebody was saying the other day um, on a forum that I was part of that, if it was God's plan for Jesus to be killed, then he should have congratulated Judas, uh, Pilate, Caiaphas, and others that participated in his death. After Jesus was resurrected, he should have gone and thanked them all. Yeah. Yeah, too. Good so, point. Uh, yeah. So we've already made this point uh, in the historical section that we did point number four is the book of acts is certain that people not god killed jesus yes so we we read quite a few instances let's read one more uh verse maybe acts 5 verse 30. the god of our ancestors raised jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross yeah after you killed him so I just want to make the connection between us and them. When I say to people, you know, you, you're culpable of the death of Jesus, um, they look a bit pained, like I wasn't there. I was 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. But here's the rub of the thing. 
is that when I am unkind to someone, I am displaying the same unkindness that was displayed towards Jesus. Mm. If I had been there, I would have probably participated in his death. Okay. It's not that my sin is what caused him to die because he had to die for my sin to fulfill a legal requirement, which is often the way we, we understand that. Yes. No, it's, it's what's in your heart. Yeah. Now, it depends on what you mean by your sin. You know, are you talking about your attitude or the penalty or the consequence? Well, it, usually I think of because of the bad deeds that I did, I've, I've broken a law that requires a penalty to be imposed yeah. on me. That's the way that yeah. I was raised understanding all of that. Yeah, that is why um, we also define sin, not in terms of acts, but in terms of attitudes. Right. So Jesus will make this very clear. He'll say, look, you define adultery as uh, a sexual act. I define it as a thought process. Mm -hmm. Nothing's actually happened physically. Right. But it's in you. And given the right situation, it will happen. Yeah. So you're saying the attitude that I harbor in my heart now is the, is simply indicate that if I had been in in Jesus day that attitude would have been demonstrated in nailing him to the cross or uh, betraying him denying him abandoning him ridic ridiculing him yeah uh, and so on right yeah okay okay so the first set of scriptures we want to read uh all seem to say that Christ died for us. Now, the, the conjunction here is very important. Uh, for us. It doesn't say with us or in us. Um, it's, it's for us. Yes. So, clearly, something's happening uh, on our behalf, so to speak. So again, I want to emphasize that this is moral. Uh, a sacrifice is a self-loss for the benefit of another. So if you give up your place on a lifeboat or you give up your parachute to someone else, there's no law that says you have to do that. Right. It's an example of a moral sacrifice. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I'm, I'm putting that out there because some people read these verses and say, well, you see, uh, Jesus, um, he died, uh, as the penalty for my sins, mm -hmm. but that might not necessarily be true because of the moral implications. Yeah. Maybe yeah. he was giving up his place in the lifeboat for me hmm. maybe he was giving me the parachute so it's a matter of which perspective you are looking at this from which set of yeah. glasses you're wearing 
Yes. Okay. So let's read some of these verses. Sure. Think of John 10, verse 11. It says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. So we have a great example of this in Adventist history of Desmond Doss in the Pacific Theater of the Second World War. He's a medic and he evacuates uh, the study of 40 people under enemy fire. Mm -hmm. So what, what he, there's no law that says he has to evacuate these people. You know, um, he does this because of some moral quality in himself. Yes. And he is sacrificing his life for his buddies. Mm -hmm. He didn't know whether he would make it out alive. alive. He was prepared to put his life on the line for these wounded men. Yes. If I recall, he, uh, he, he thought he had saved about 50 men. They claimed he saved 100, and so they settled on 75. <laughs> really? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luke twenty-two nineteen. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's interesting here is Jesus says he is giving his body. Now, when we execute somebody, we don't describe it that way. We don't say uh, James Earl Ray was executed for assassinating Martin Luther King. Mm. Um, we don't say he gave his life for Martin Luther King. Mm. We took his life. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus says, um, this is my body, which is given for you, it means he is under no obligation to give it. Right. This is a moral sacrifice that he's making. Had there been a law, he would have been morally obligated. Yes. But he well, wasn't. legally obligated. Yeah. I mean, legally obligated. Yes. Yeah. 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 Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So um, he did something for us that we did not appreciate at the time. Yes. While we were still sinners. He did something for us. That's like you saying on uh, on your wife's birthday, you went and bought flowers for her while she was still asleep. Mm. You want to read uh, Ephesians 5 verse 2? Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. So... As soon as that word sacrifice is used, we quickly jump to the conclusion that he was under obligation, like a sinner in Israel was under obligation to bring a sin offering. Yes. And we, we don't think about the moral reason for Jesus doing this. 
Mm -hmm. And like the idea of it being a pleasing aroma to God, that does not sound like a penalty to me. A, a penalty, when it's paid, it's under obligation. There's no pleasing aroma. Yeah. If I have a speeding ticket and I go and pay my uh, uh, fine, uh, there's no pleasing aroma to anybody. You know, certainly not to me. Mm -hmm. And the person who takes my money never really smiles and says, well, I'm richer now by far because you paid your fine. It's just duty. You do it. You get it over with as soon as possible. You know, the Bible talks about God forgiving us freely. And so if it was a penalty that he paid, yes. how could he forgive us? He got payment. But the, he wasn't paying a penalty. He was giving it freely as a gift um, yes. with no obligation to do so. Yeah. And, it, and this is why I'm compelled to believe this was a moral sacrifice that Jesus made. Yes. It, he was under no obligation to do so. Uh, you want to read First Thessalonians 5.10? Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. I'm going to read Titus 2.14. He gave his life, cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. So the results that uh, Paul mentions here uh, in Titus uh, is not a legal obligation that's being paid. This is a, a moral change in a person that results. Right. Free, free us from every kind of sin to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. Do you want to read First Peter 3.18? Christ suffered for our sins once for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So notice why uh, he suffered, to bring you safely home to God. Right. So Peter sees the result of um, his suffering as accomplishing a reconciliation. So, so it's a reconciliation in that it cha he changes our minds about God, not God's mind about us. Yeah. And I submit to you that a moral sacrifice has a, a far greater possibility of doing that mm -hmm. than a legal repayment of an obligation. Right. So this, uh, uh, just to sum this up, the, the, the verses we've read, the purpose of his life was a moral sacrifice to redeem us from our selfish, sinful ways. His life, death, and resurrection uh, were not a penalty for our wrongdoing, but were the consequence of our wickedness 
in executing. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to um, stop there and allow people to ponder that because we've got several other passages to look at and, um, and, and we can continue that next time. I, I like that idea. Um, I just remind people that uh, uh, the information we're sharing with you is documented on the website. Yes. rediscoveringgod.ca because there's a PDF and so um, you can just uh, download the document and you have all the evidence in front of you. Right. Good. Why don't you pray for so, us as we conclude? Dear God, we, we really don't understand what this cost you. Um, and we only begin to scratch the surface of what it might mean and what caused the death of Jesus. We are so grateful in your presence that you have revealed yourself to us. Otherwise, we'd be completely ignorant of what you have done for us, how we worship you as Lord of our lives and Savior of our souls. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this journey to understand the God that Jesus knew. And if you'd like to share this with friends, we'd appreciate that. In fact, we have created a new website called rediscoveringgod.ca. You can refer your friends to that site, and they can see all the podcasts that we have produced so far, and the ones uh, in the future will be posted there. Uh, you can make comments. You can join us in a dialogue and a conversation so that we can discover what difference this is making for you or any questions that you have that we can endeavor to answer or perhaps address in a future podcast. So that's rediscoveringgod.ca. In addition to the website, we've also created a WhatsApp site called Rediscovering God. So if you're on WhatsApp or would like to join us, uh, just search for us there or send me an email at wkay. S is in Sam, I-X, at gmail.com. And I'll be glad to add you to our group and we can continue the dialogue there.